You're listening to My Unlived Life, a podcast about the path not taken. I'm Miriam Robinson. A few years ago, my life fell apart in pretty dramatic fashion, and I found myself feeling that somewhere I'd made a wrong turn. I suddenly felt very far from home and family, and felt even farther from myself. I began to wonder, what if I had done things differently? We don't like to ask this question. It threatens to trap us in the past without a map back to the here and now. So I decided to make the map. Each episode, I interview someone about another course their lives could have taken. We begin at the point where their paths diverged and together, step-by-step, we imagine ourselves into the lives they never lived. Because these lives have a lot to teach us about ourselves, if we let them. This week, I spoke to Molly Flatt, novelist, comment editor at the Bookseller Magazine, program director for the Publishing Industry's Future Book Conference, and co-founder of the Big Book Weekend. She writes about the intersection of culture and tech for everyone from The Guardian to The Evening Standard, and is equally at home talking about everything from science fiction to universal consciousness. Her debut novel, The Charmed Life of Alex Moore, is published by Pan Macmillan and available to buy from all good bookshops. Molly lives in East London with her husband and their two children. During our chat, Molly and I explored what her life would have been like if, in 2014, the sale on the house she intended to buy in the countryside hadn't fallen through and she'd left London for the Oxfordshire of her youth. Along the way, we discussed her tangled love affair with London, the limits of rational thought, how to combat perfectionism, and the unexpected upside of a hackney bar fight. Hi, Molly. Hi. I'm really glad you're here, and I'm also um, particularly glad you're here on this afternoon because I feel like in our in our real lives, you know, outside of when we're um, both sitting in our rooms podcasting, we have these freelance careers that overlap sometimes. And uh, for uh, one of our sort of mutual employers, I think that we both have stuff we're supposed to be doing. And I really like the fact that instead of doing our stuff, we're sitting here chatting with each other. <laughs> I love it. I, I feel like I feel like the word career is possibly a bit de- generous on my side. <laughs> random collection of hopeful stuff. <laughs> That's better. Thank you for being so much more specific. <laughs> <laughs> well, so what we're going to do today is we are going to explore your unlived life. And in order to do that, you are going to take us back to a moment where your path diverged and where you went one direction instead of going another direction. We're going to go back to that sort of crossroads moment and we're going to see if we can imagine ourselves into what might have happened. I love this format, right? I was, um, I was just, it's just, it is essentially the same joy you get from writing a book because that's the excuse that fiction gives you is to go into different people and like figure your way through different lives and scenarios. So yeah, there's nothing I love more than. Well, and what I actually really like um, about doing this with you is I think that in your debut novel, The Charmed Life of Alex Moore. Oh, I see what you did there. Plug. No, but genuinely, genuinely, I was looking back over it and I was like, it's not a million miles off because you focus so much around the idea of a moment 
where your narrative can change yeah. or a memory or yeah. a, a, an event which can change the course of your life and which can not only change the course of your life, but change the way you, the story you tell yourself about your life. Well, do you know what I used to, um, over the years, I've read a lot of self-help literature. I used to be a bit obsessed with it, with very kind of ambivalent feelings. I couldn't figure out how I felt about this stuff, whether, you know, I yearned and it was the the most incredible thing or you know it was just total self-indulgent like pseudo-scientific bullshit but um that that particular thing used to always fascinate me this this idea in all of those and you know it's in you know quite a lot of spiritual texts as well this idea of the revelation and the mo the moment that you can just totally change everything or perspective your life you know as opposed to lived reality where you know most of it feels like just total repetitive groundhog day grunt work with tiny incremental creeps forward but I think it's such a seductive idea how could you not explore it that it's moments that can change everything and you know I do think you know that the, the the moment we'll talk about I do think I don't know if other people find this but there are the odd moments in my life where I do kind of stand back from it somewhere in my head and go oh so this is a plot point you know, it's rare. But um, yeah, yeah. Don't know if I just read too many books and watch too many films and I've started to see everything as a script. No, I don't. Well, and also I think, I think there's a distinction between what we're talking about, which is sort of the fact that our life is made up of both large and small decision points, which then send us off in sort of different directions versus I think like the myth of the epiphany. Do you know what I mean? And I think that that's when you get into the sort of self-help literature and when you get into, I think, a lot of, unfortunately, sort of um, popular culture, you have this idea. And I think I think maybe part of why I like this format is because I think I definitely grew up waiting for my eureka moment, you know, like I like all the time, just kind of kind of waking up and going, ooh, is this is this going to be the day when I when I realize X and everything goes Y, you know, and it never is because you're, as you say, that's just like not really how life goes. But so, okay. So I want to get into your path, but I wanted to ask first, um, because I think they're linked, which is that when we were speaking earlier, you were describing your childhood to me and you have written about yourself elsewhere. And I, this feel, it seems like it references your childhood as an over-imaginative hedgerow dweller which I love. And so I was wondering if just as a precursor to talking about your path, which is much, much later, um, if you could just say a little bit about your childhood and what your upbringing was like. Oh, it's hard to disentangle, isn't it, from the myth-making, well, you know, that certainly I do about my past. The really interesting thing is I feel like my memories are very poor. And I don't know if that's like... Don't know, maybe it's like hiding some deep trauma or something like that. But I think partly it is that I lived so much of my childhood in my head, which sounds brilliant. But you know, also I don't know, did I did I miss a lot of real life? Um so yeah, I grew up in an old house, not a you know, not a big fancy, you know, beautiful rambling, don't get a kind of atonement style vibe going on here. It was not glamorous, you know. I've got I've got Dodie Smith in my head. It says that I kept in the castle vibe. No. It was just an old knackered house, but it had like a really old um bit of it in a village, a little village in Oxfordshire. 
Um, but it had it had a good garden. It had, I think, almost an acre of kind of rambling, slightly hilly garden that backed onto fields. And so for me, that was everything. It was also, I suppose, somewhere I could escape to because my parents didn't have the happiest relationship um, at all times. And my dad especially was not the happiest human being. Um, at all times. But, you know, they were amazing parents. They worked incredibly hard to to give us this house that, you know, neither of them had had anything like that growing up, having that kind of freedom. And yeah, I spent most of my childhood wearing my nightie and a pair of wellies and going out with our dog and climbing, either being in the orchard or climbing over the wall and running around making up stories. It was like half theatre, half novelist or something, I suppose. And was really awesome and an incredible shock, actually, then when I was kind of 17 and went to university and, oh, had to live in a slightly more real world. You know, school, school, I went to an all-girls school in Oxford, so I was still able to kind of live a bit of my fantasy world. But yeah, it was amazing. I love I love that image of you and your nighty with the wellies and the dog. It just makes me happy. Makes me happy too. <laughs> it was, and you know, so kind of. Yeah, I'm sure we'll touch on this, but therefore, kind of makes me feel perpetually shocked that I've ended up in you know Zone One <laughs> Hackney <laughs> with my own kids because that was certainly never the plan. Well, that is exactly where I want to go. Thank you for that seamless transition. Yeah. So I think I do <laughs> want to come up to um, the year 2014, which is where we have the path that you want to explore. And I wonder if you can tell us a little bit about what you want to explore and give a little context, because obviously you do live in London with your family. So just, yeah, give a little sense of where you were then and then what the path was. Yeah. So 2014, this, this, this thing was just the most obvious thing that sprang to my mind when you asked about these these moments that changed and there was so much emotion loaded around it so I suppose I moved to I went to uni I did a postgrad then I moved to London because I kind of I think I wanted to scare myself I felt like you know come on Molly you're young if you're not careful you'll end up like I don't know studying Arthurian literature and living in a flipping <laughs> hamlet so yeah I moved to London I suppose it was slightly self-flagellatory I was terrified but I felt like if I was ever going to do it I had to do it then and I wanted to push myself so I was only there I think two years temping uh temping and acting which is what I did my postgrad in and you know going out with my friends and, and living life when I met Yanni who's now my husband and like I, I hadn't had anything you could define as a boyfriend up, up until then. I was super geeky. I was very awkward. Anyway, that was it. I didn't want to get married ever. Like I wanted to be this independent single woman for years and years and years. And then maybe when I was like 60 and had had this glamorous, exciting life, I would like meet some, some suave guy who I'd want to end up with. But no, I was 22 and I met Yanni. So we were in London and and loved London you know and I really it was so funny because I always felt London was temporary and I still sometimes do even now I've been here for so long and so I suppose that was the impetus for having this conversation with Yanni about do we want to really be in London long term and so we'd kind of play a bit of property porn on right move and the obvious place to look was 
around near my where my mum was living and now lives, not the house I was born and grew up in my whole life. She moved out of there just after I left uni, um, but nearby, still, you know, a village in Oxfordshire. So we were kind of looking at places a few miles away from there and saw somewhere that looked quite interesting. And so we were like, oh, well, next time we go and visit my mum, maybe we should just see, you know, what's the harm in, in seeing what it looks like. And actually, we loved it. And again, it wasn't huge. It wasn't, it wasn't a beautiful old house. It wasn't, you know anything like the house I grew up in, but we liked it. It was quirky. So we just decided to go for it. It was exciting. We'd found this place. We were going to visit it every time we went to see mum. It was owned by a guy whose family had grown up there and, and sadly his wife had died and he was he was ready to sell. And so we had all these plans about, you know, things we were going to do to it, ways we were going to personalize it. It felt really exciting. It just felt like the next the next big thing to happen in our lives. It was like the next step. And then I think it was literally a week, week before exchange or even just a few days before exchange, the seller pulled out. And I remember very clearly standing in our flat in London and this feeling, this feeling of this is impossible. This feeling that this reminder that the world is totally out of your control and that there was nothing we could say or do to change it. This felt like the hinge of our future and, and me finally going back to, to where I really belonged and there's nothing we could do to change it. So, um, yeah, that was the moment. That was the moment. The, the dream was gone. There's so much in there and I want to, I'm hoping as we continue to chat that we can come back to some things you touched on, in particular, this idea of, things that are just completely out of your control, which I think is just such a difficult one. I think especially for ambitious anyone or, you know, anyone who's sort of quite used to being able to control their life circumstances. And also this idea of, which you touched on earlier, of this sort of self-flagellatory nature of what it means to live in London, which I imagine a lot of people can relate to. But before we touch those, I want to start down your path. So I want us to go back to that moment where the seller said that the house was no longer available. <laughs> and let's say he didn't. So he doesn't do it. And you guys are poised. And obviously, you don't yet have children. You're both employed in London. And so your sale goes through. What happens next? So I guess we still stick to that plan. I guess we try for kids. And the interesting thing is, already I'm thinking that would have added a hell of a lot of extra pressure, whether that was going to happen or not, which I felt ambivalent about to begin with. Because would I have felt that the house was essentially there for us to start a family in? I'm there because of my childhood because I associate the countryside with being a child and that kind of freedom and that kind of innocence. Well, and I think also what I think is really interesting and I think is why I wanted you to talk about your childhood in the first place is I do think when we get to that point, when we're either, when we have kids or even when we're thinking about having kids, we do, we, we revert a little bit, I think, to either wanting to be home or wanting things to feel like home. I think that goes right up through sort of having, you know, young children when you're sort of constantly 
looking after somebody else and looking after somebody else's needs or when you're thinking about having children and you're imagining that you're going to have somebody else you're going to have to look after. And I think there's a really primitive part of us that just goes, I want to be taken care of. I want to be back, you know, and you do try to kind of recreate those circumstances. Totally. And and I want to be near your mum for sure. And yeah, I suppose, isn't it interesting? Recreate my parents' choices, perhaps, in that moment. It's all, it's the only way I knew to do kids, really. And yeah, so, so as it turned out, I need help to get pregnant. I mean, I'm lucky. It's basically a pill called Clomid, which is a bit of extra estrogen that, I mean, please, I knew the science at the time, but barely a year after I gave birth to the second one, I've forgotten how it all works. I, you know, And I was feeling ambivalent about it anyway. So as Yanni and I were kind of going through to all these appointments at the Homerton and finding out, and frankly, they don't, they didn't know what was going on with me anyway. And I think that's a really, really common experience, actually. Well, it's that classic thing, isn't it, about women's health as well, just the extent to which there's so much that is, is unknown because no one's bothered to do the research. Exactly. But we had a great consultant and he was like, look, I think we should try this route. I think it's as likely as anything. Um, so we were trying this route and, you know, so it was, it was pretty invasive. You know, I had to have a bunch of scans and a bunch of, you know, doctors with their hands up my vagina at like 9am in the morning because that was the only appointment I could get. Um, and, and, and I was feeling, and, you know, I was feeling ambivalent about the whole thing anyway, because as I said, I was slightly scared of being good enough to have kids, you know, of, how would I, how would I work and have kids? I've always, I'd always so self-defined through work massively, partly as the kind of perfectionist academic. Um, but also, you know, my mum was a brilliant feminist trailblazer. She was kind of management in the auto industry and used, you know, back in the days that when that wasn't a thing and used to walk through the kind of factory floor because that was the only place where they had female toilets and get yelled at by all the guys on the line and, you know, cause she was in her suit and all of these things. And so, yeah, it was, a, it, it was all a big part of my identity work and being kind of the independent working woman. And I was scared of taking on this more traditional identity and simply what it would do to my life time-wise and everything else. I just think the ambivalence about motherhood is something that we don't sort of talk about enough. I think, again, in the same category of the myth of the epiphany is the myth of the overeager mother Absolutely. And I think this really brings us back to, to the, the, the country v city thing or, or indeed the change, because I think that would have been huge added pressure, actually, thinking about, well, we've got this house. Number one, if, if this doesn't work and I can't have a kid, then, you know, what do I really want to live my country life? But actually, then if I'm defined by work, wouldn't it be better to be closer to the source of my work, which was London? Um, we were super lucky. We actually got pregnant first time on um, on Clomid, um, and you know had Missy at home in London in our London flat alone. Not the plan. We well, we planned a home birth, but um, not a home birth alone. But it was very fast, and I have a very high pain threshold, and I was very stubborn, so no one could get there in time. Um, so you know that, which actually again kind of. Added- was this was this twenty fifteen? So this was about a year, or was this was that? This is a couple of years after you lost the house. Yeah, we'd given us, we'd had kind of a year to try or a year and a half. And then we were, then we were into kind of the system. So can we, can we explore? So if in your unlived life, if the house had gone through, you're saying you would have felt this added pressure, but would you have kind of 
would it have been roughly the same trajectory, do you think? I think at that point, yeah. So I think we'd have waited until Missy was born, or at least until we were pregnant. You see, once we were pregnant, maybe then, you know, maybe, yeah, Missy wouldn't have been born alone. Let's think. Let's decide. Let's decide. Do you move when you when you get pregnant? Yeah. Yeah, we would have said, now that we're pregnant, come on, this is happening. We want to start our new family. We want to start our lives in the place that I associate with safety and childhood and, and all of that. Okay, great. And you move to the countryside, yeah. which yeah. yeah, you sell up. And then what? What happens to work for both of you? So what happens to work? Now, this is... So I got postnatal depression after missing. And that's a question. Would I have got it if I was in the country? My instincts were 100% yes, but I would have been much less alone. So, you know, there are, my mum would have been around the corner and I assume I would have seen her pretty much every day, even though she was still working at the time and, you know, going in and out of places. You know, that I think is hard because, you know, I was alone in this flat. The flat was dark, that flat that Missy was born in. It was over the courtyard, so it didn't have a lot of natural light. Very small space. And, you know, ridiculous UK. Yanni has his two weeks paternity leave and then he's off. And I face these days. So if I'd been in a house with a garden and more light and my mum right round the corner, would would it have been, I think it probably would have still, still happened, but maybe it would have been worse. But at the same time, London changed for me forever when I have Missy anyway, because the places you're familiar with aren't necessarily places you could go anymore. You have to build a whole new infrastructure anyway. I feel like... What's so evident, obviously, in terms of this path, which is about literally moving somewhere else, but it's just this idea of the importance of place and what place means to you and what place offers you and what one place offers you over another uh, another place offering you and what you take from it. And I think everything you've just said is correct in the sense of, you know, a bustling, busy city can feed you and it can also make you feel like the loneliest person in the universe. But let's yeah. Let's attempt, if we can, to go back to this moment where you've you've moved to the country, you're pregnant with Missy, you've got your family around you, you guys have settled in the house. Where let's yeah. try this. Where do you give birth to Missy? Is there a local hospital? There's the the local hospital is the one I was born in, but I reckon we'd have come round to the home birth thing anyway. I always thought hypnobirth birthing obviously sounds so bogus, like it's such a terrible name. But, you know, it is just about like applying breathing and positive visualization, all the, you know, stuff I did in other areas of my life anyway to birth. So we, I think we would have found that. And, and you know, for me, hypnobirthing was just the natural, having done that, it was the natural extension because I figured, well, if things tend to go best while you're chilled and relaxed and in a space that just lets you your body get on with things, what you know our plan was to stay at home for as long as possible and then go to a birthing center I was like well well, why at the crucial moment would you then go somewhere unfamiliar with the potential to stress you out um especially because the midwives bring you know they bring stuff it's not like they're there with like a flipping you know tissue um so home birth but I guess it wouldn't have been alone because um yeah one of the reasons uh that we were alone was because um there was a bar fight in Hackney. So at the point at which the midwife said, hang up the phone. Well, Yanni was on the phone to the midwives and they said, we'll get her in the bath. She's fine. First baby will, 
you know, get our stuff together soon. And Yanni was like, oh, she's crawling to the bath and I can see the head coming. Um, they said, they said, hang up, call 999. And, um, and there were no ambulances because they were all at a bar fight. So less likely to happen in kind of rural Oxfordshire, I imagine. But, you know, maybe they're further away, so it would have taken them longer to arrive. Well, let's decide. What happens? Let's say she isn't born alone. The midwives come and they do the home birth. And interestingly, I think I'm making that choice because I'm kind of allying myself with London. Do you know what I mean? I'm allying myself with what happened. Like it seemed at the time such a typical thing about, right, you live in the city, you give birth in the city. You know, this is the kind of thing that everyone worries about. All the ambulances are tied up dealing with some fight, so they can't come to help. And, you know, the, the, the midwives are doing like, you know, 15 home births every night, jumping between each other. And they were, but w- when they arrived, eventually got me out of the bath, me and the baby out of the bath. They were hyper efficient, you know. Um, but actually, it was amazing as well. In retrospect, we have this incredible birth story. We were with Missy alone for the first 15 minutes of her life. Yanni delivered her. You know, we were just lying there in the bath. We were lucky, but it was also incredible. So, yeah, I'm I'm really grateful for it in retrospect. So the the midwives get there sooner. You're not alone in this instance when when Missy is born. What happens next? So we have Missy. I reckon I still get depression, but probably get help sooner and it's cushioned a little bit, I think. Again, from that, gosh, it's the every, it's the intensity of London. I just sometimes feels like it intensifies everything. So I feel it would have been just like 50% less just because everything in London is more intense. And then, so juggling work would have been a really different thing. Because around here, again, one of the reasons we moved, you know, what I then discovered is it was very easy for me to juggle Missy and, well, not easy for me to juggle and Missy and work, but we had a nursery two minutes down the road that we love. And I, Missy went in there seven months old because, you know, by then I was fully freelance. You do not get (laughs) maternity leave and clients only wait for so long. And I was, you know, back on it three days a week. And I think what would have been interesting in the countryside is how much I would have been able to find space for a me who wasn't a daughter or a mother. Because I would have been near my mum, seeing my mum a lot, which is, you know, always wonderful. But I, and, and I would have been in the house that was about family that we would have bought for and become a family in and Yanni would have been commuting because he works in in sports business and has always had jobs that require him to travel a lot and obviously I'd have found friends more more local friends and one of my school friends kind of lives not too far away from there anyway and she would have been amazing but I think what has always been brilliant in London is that I could go and sit somewhere and be whichever self I wanted to be. Maybe I could would have been more productive in the country because I had less interruptions. I had fewer temptations because in London, especially living so centrally, it's very easy to go and meet a coffee of someone who goes, oh, you guys must know each other. So-and-so is writing a brilliant book about 
science and technology and how it impacts on our culture and you need to go and meet them because I think you guys would get on a house on fire or you know all kinds of random meetings like that and developing relationships with people who I didn't know very well but then suddenly they become incredibly close because you just vibe from all kinds of generations and things that in London I think has always been magical and has allowed me to go out there and and do you know what Miriam not even be anything or anyone just listen not pose or label or be the I don't know what the 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 going out me or the writer me, but to just go and listen to people with totally different experiences and totally different lives. And I wonder how and, and if I would have fulfilled that in the countryside. Well, let's think about it. <laughs> so you you have Missy, she's born, you don't have a nursery down the road. Yeah, so I have to get in a car. <laughs> I have to buy a car. Can I go back? Because I just, one thing I want to ask is about this difference in the postpartum depression because there's a question obviously when postpartum depression is really intense and I don't I don't know how this played out for you but makes it very difficult to work I'm just really interested in how we transition how you transitioned in your real life versus how you'll transition in your unlived life from whether it's 100% postpartum depression or 50% postpartum depression how does that work in either space yeah I think one thing I did do is try and work too early the day before Missy was born, I handed in the draft of my novel. So there's that whole thing about if I'd have moved to the country when I was pregnant with Missy, I would have been in the thick of finishing off. And this this was a, like seven year process writing that book. So this was the last draft out of quite a few drafts that have been kind of written and raised to the ground and restarted. And so I would have finished writing the book in the countryside. And would you have? Yeah, I would have had to if I was living there when I was pregnant. Again, I kind of feel like I would have had more time or less time. Let's choose. Less time. Because I would have been setting up a house. I suppose maybe I would have done online ordering. But in the countryside, I feel like everything takes longer and takes more planning. In London, you know, particularly back then, we just grab anything from the co-op under our, literally under our building, um, you know, any night, go and grab it, you know, put, put something together. You know, I feel like I would have been much more preoccupied with the change and trying to weave this story, the story of my life. Yeah, interestingly, maybe I wouldn't have got the draft written. That's what I'm wondering. Yeah, let's do that one. So let's say with all of that upheaval and mental jiggering and time taking up with commuting, I don't finish the draft. Now, the question is, would my body have given Missy up with quite alacrity unless it had had that cue of, oh, you've just given birth to your first baby. Now you can have the flesh one. But let's say, it does, you know, it's going to have, she's going to have to come out eventually, two weeks later. So Missy's born and then I'm there with this unfinished draft of the book and I get 50% of the depression. And then I'm working. So I think I'd still have done what I did in London, which is try and work really early as a way of coping with the depression. That was hard enough. I'm very much a proponent of being able to write and anywhere under any circumstances, not have garrets, um, not have, you know, rituals, because that's the way I've always had to write. But I do think it would have been very, very hard to get anything done in that headspace and in those tiny snatched, you know, 
20 minutes of time. So, you know, at this point, time's ticking on. So then we're autumn of that year. Yeah, autumn of 2016, I still haven't finished the book. So in that parallel real life, it was that October that I, was that October or later that I got the book deal? So that, you know, but I haven't even finished the book yet. I I would have finished it, Miriam. The reason this novel got finished is because I made the vow when I married, around when I married Yanni, actually, in 2011, that I was going to write novels, finally commit to writing novels, and every one I was going to choose one to start, and I was going to finish it before I let myself start the next one, regardless of if any of them got published, if any of them wanted it, if I made any money, you know, I might always have to be doing them on the side as a hobby in snatch time. Um, and so I back myself on that front. I really like that because it's it's one thing to sort of commit to the writing. But I think um, a problem that a lot of creatives have is actually in the finishing and actually getting something out into the world. I think whether it's a question of our own sort of fear of success whether it's um, something else, whether it's just literally that the beginnings are always a little more interesting than the ending bit and the kind of horrible, horrible slog that comes at the end when you're making edit number 827. Um, exactly. But I like that commitment to finish something, which is interesting and it dovetails quite nicely with your commitment to start something when you married Yanni. Yeah, exactly. I think, um, yeah, that's that's always been a huge one for me because I think, you know, the, the, the thing unwritten is always the best thing you've ever written. And as a, I'm not a perfectionist anymore, actually. I really have, again, motherhood will do that to you, but I really have, um, I have scraped that out from within me. I decided it was more painful to be the cliche of the person who was writing a novel and never actually flipping wrote it. Yes, that hurts. <laughs> then I kind of like this idea of being this mad person, who indeed I am, who just finishes, just writes novels and finishes novels. And, you know, yes, I was lucky enough to get the first one published, but geez, I might never get an another one published or it might be eight down the line or something. But, you know, that is absolutely, for me, my kind of creative pact to myself that I'm just going to keep finishing. I love that. What I like about it is... Uh, uh is it in the face of something you you've brought up a few times now, which is this idea of you as a perfectionist. And I wonder if you want to talk a little bit about the sort of origin of that perfectionism. We talked a little bit in another conversation about that transition and you brought it up at the start, that transition from wild nightgown wellies girl to university, which was a massive shock and it, it took a toll on your system, right? Yeah. You know, it, it so much of it, sounds like a cliche and is a cliche really you know of the the overachieving white middle class academic girl who's the big fish in school and then goes to uni and still does well but realizes there's more to life than like <laughs> translating middle english it, it's a way of it's a it's control perfectionism is all about control isn't it and and, and about proving your worth and and utterly exhausting you know this idea that you have to prove your your worth on this planet by being being not just good enough but kind of the best um and I, I suppose I was always more competitive with myself than I was with other people it was always about kind of smashing my own standards and reaching my own standards and um one of no the most freeing thing that has happened in my life in the past few years and has intensified this year during lockdown has been my increasing realisation that brains and thinking 
is not our human superpower. So, you know, I always think that was our species superpower, the ability to cogitate, the ability to be clever, the ability to tell stories, the ability to create language and summon worlds and be these little gods with our clever, clever brains. And actually, oh God, I'm going to just, I'm going to just start sounding like Eckhart Tolle now. But, But our superpower is consciousness, consciousness, which is actually an ability to stand back from the thought and the emotion and all of these things that we think make us so thrillingly unique and special and interesting which are the least interesting things about us well and if you want to go really if you want to go really full Eckhart Tolle it's it's tapping into something much more universal than than the individual right so when it's consciousness in this sort of sense of all consciousness everywhere is what you're in theory tapping into right exactly and not and not looking for answers and and kind of you know solutions to the world actually it's about just trying to be present that's the best way for me to get over perfectionism is just stop playing the game and it's been it's totally transformative it's this realization that your mind is a really great tool, but it's not the driver. That's a really bad mixed metaphor, but you know what I mean. <laughs> and again, back to that thing that it's not the most interesting thing about you. I think, again, you know, in when the kind of nine, 10 years I worked in the tech world, and I was very often the only woman in the room and certainly the only woman on stage, it was this funny dance of, wanting to deny my body and distract from the fact that I was a woman by proving the cleverness of my mind, proving that I belonged to be there and that I could hold my own. But then I was just totally shooting myself in the foot because it was all entirely hollow and there's a bit of me that knew that. And you can never be clever enough. And I think if you're writing, if you're writing from that place as well, and my goodness, you know, there was seven years of that in these rejected drafts, you can never be clever enough because there are always people cleverer than you, you know. And so, so, so trying to write a book that's worth people reading because it's really clever. Oh, my God. I mean, kill yourself now. Also, please don't read it. Like, that's the most boring, boring kind of page wank in the history of existence page so, wank yeah. <laughs> yes that's really it's not now a word and it's amazing so missy is born you're going back to work you're snatching time you managed to finish the book i would have actually finished the book i think the book would have been similar because i would have written the bulk of it anyway. And it was so what I wanted to say. I think it had its own impetus that would have been regardless of space. And so I suppose there's no reason I, hopefully, that I wouldn't have got the deal, depending on location. Okay. So you get the same deal, same publisher? Yeah. Same deal, same publisher. You're continuing to work. At some point, you guys decide to have a second child. Does that happen roughly around the same time? So, no, there's a bit of space. So I think what's interesting is my career between that period, I really became about me finding what I wanted to do, that balance between what people want to pay you to do and, and what you want to do. So, so and, and it was in that time that then I became part of the bookseller. I'd done a few bits for them. 
But then Porter left Future Book and Philip asked me to take it on. Now, would he have asked me if I would have been living out in the sticks? Say who Philip is really quickly. Uh, editor of the bookseller. <laughs> Everyone knows Philip. Everyone knows Philip. Everyone knows. knows Philip in London. So, you know, that was the interesting thing because there is a degree to which, you know, he wanted my my plugged inness with the tech world. And I, you know, loved storytelling, loved the tech world, knew a bit about the publishing world, but not much. So it was a rapid trajectory of learning by, again, meeting lots of people. And I'm not sure how possible that would have been not living where I lived in London. So let's figure it out. What do you think? Do you have the same network? No. So are you then less attractive as an employee to Philip? Yeah, I think I think it's it would just be less easy for Philip and me to meet. So I want to go back to we we've just hit a kind of crucial point, which is we've just realized that I mean so much of your current career is based on you meeting Philip Jones from the bookseller and that relationship really coalescing and you taking on so much work at the bookseller. So we're saying in this universe where you live in the countryside, that doesn't happen. Does something take its place? I wonder if I would have gone harder on the copywriting. So that's the other strand that has provided me income over the years is corporate copywriting, which kind of, I, I am able luckily to kind of dial up and down a bit, depending on what other work I have. But that's the the best paid thing in my entire career, as you kindly called it. And it has a ple- it has a real pleasure to it. I always think of it as kind of like for a pianist doing scales. Unlike the other things I do, unlike journalism, unlike novel writing, unlike events, you get a brief, you are not yourself. Your job is to ventriloquize, find what the reader wants and to put yourself in in the shoes of the company and the people in the company and how they want to come across. And it's wonderful. People say thank you. I wonder if I would have done that and it would have become much more the the pillar that sits next to the novel writing. Yeah, I wonder if kind of the journalism and the other things would have fallen away because also, Marion, the journalism a lot of it comes from my London experiences and from me talking about how books and technology intersect, but also, you know, I've written for the Evening Standards about having a baby in Zone 1 and writing for The Guardian about being a woman in sci-fi and, you know, going to events in London and things like that. And, and so it's like, I I feel like I would have felt like I had nothing to give. Do you know what I would have felt? I would have felt here I am, the ultimate cliche, like the the middle class woman with a kid who moved out of London, who's living in a little country village. Like even now I have a massive issue with what do I have to say about the world? Why does my voice have any originality, any validity, which goes back to our mind versus consciousness thing. Just that sense of who am I and why do I matter? And And it's always been hard enough, but sometimes I feel, but I think living where I live and being able to go to lots of things and see lots of people gives me a pathetic kind of sense of, well, at least I've kind of got some stuff to write about and some stuff to talk about. And I'm tapped in to some kind of areas. Whereas I think my particular flavour of imposter syndrome would have been exploded by being back in the countryside um, and feeling like I'm just the posh girl from, you know, from the shires. Um, with a kid sitting in my garden 
writing about what. So fine, write your own novel, make it up, make use of the countryside to go deeper into that. But the other stuff, just do copywriting. It's not about you. It's not. And and, and it's really interesting because I've never, never thought about that. But I think, yeah, I feel like challenging myself by being in London and by having experiences that I didn't have when I was growing up and seeing lots of different stuff. And that slightly mitigates what I see is like my core flaw, which is that I am who I am. That's fairly depressing. That's not it. No, wait, we weren't supposed to go there. We weren't supposed to go there, but no, but like, I'm fine because I'm over it. But you know, that, that, that's really, I think that's really true. Do you, so my only, my only question in that space is, you still have fiction and you're still writing your novel out there. So you you still have a drive to not disappear yourself. And what you don't have is you don't have the crutch of London. And it's a very yeah. positive crutch, but you don't have yeah. it out there. So what what wins, your imaginative capabilities or your imposter syndrome when you're in the countryside? Both. I think I've always have written books, but I wouldn't have put continued to put myself out there as me, which I still struggle with. You know, there are many days when I think I don't feel qualified. I don't have anything to say. Yeah, fine. I can disappear into my imagination because that's much more subjective. And it's kind of like, if you can suck people into an imaginative world, they're not thinking about you. They're thinking about the world. And then maybe I should just drop everything else and just copyright because that's the glory of anonymity and defined briefs and not be so vulnerable. Try and do things that that are that are visible, which you know, journalism and, and and creating events and things like that. It does it does kind of put you out there. So I think the finishing the books and the doing that stuff that that would never stop. And I think I would have stuck to my guns with the finishing. So writing a novel is the most exposing thing, right? Because even though I'm spinning it as the journalism and the doing events. That is far less vulnerable than the novel where you go, you know, you lay your guts out for everyone to see on a page and ship it. I think there's something, there's still, there's still an element of persona in the journalism and the event stuff. I know I do it. I do it. Do you know what I mean? It's like, it's you, but it's not you. So then it makes me think, you know, in the countryside, is it then easier to be vulnerable because I don't feel like I'm going to get it wrong and I'm scared and I have to keep on playing with how much armour I put on or don't put on on a daily basis? Can I just be that? Or does that dance of how much armour I do put on and don't put on help my courage to be vulnerable? What do you think the answer is? And I know that you love London and I know that you really want to convince yourself that London is the place to be. Try to sort of, what do you think happens in the depths of Oxfordshire? I think I keep writing. I think I write the sequel to Alex, but I think this book I'm writing now, I think I would really struggle to have got here because I think... I would not have been as challenged in as many ways as I have been in the past few years. That just made me go deeper, maybe go deeper and made me give up is definitely the wrong word, but I mean it in a good way. In the sort of letting go way. 
that you get, which you talk about so much in your novel, yeah. right? I mean, it just keeps coming yeah. through, let go, yeah. let go, let go. Because I think the ego, the ego, my ego is so strong and has been so strong. And, and you know, I, I'd say this in a, a very true sense of word, you know, the sense of self, the need for a story around self, the need to, to craft this narrative and protect it and figure out who you are and what you are has always been so strong that it needs and has always needed a flipping battering to let it let go and let some of the deeper light in. And I don't think the storms would have been big enough out there to have battered it down. And I think, I'm honestly, I'm so happy now. And I feel like with the book I'm writing now, it's coming through. I'm I'm letting go. And I think, and you know, my gosh, that has involved a hell of a lot of pain and discomfort and but it's but an equal, equal and opposite amount of freedom and joy and strength. I think in the countryside, I could go out into those fields and see that perspective and be part of that perspective theoretically and have felt safer and calmer. But to get that openness inside myself, to get that countryside inside myself, I think I needed the city to like batter me open. <laughs> I just had a small orgasm. It was so beautiful. I'm so sorry. I can't, I don't know where to go from there. That's amazing. Oh my God. Thank you for like getting me that. It's really true. And and the joy is that I still crave for some countries. And you know what? I'm, I'm going to end up there. There's going to be a point where I think, I think I will come back to London later, but I do think there's going to be a chunk when the kids need me less and I'm older. And I don't know, maybe I'll have some more time to write and things. Oh, fuck, maybe not. Maybe I'm just always going to go and visit the countryside and visit my mum and, and, and see my sister and be there. But I think, I think, yeah, I've spent a lot of time in my past in the countryside but inside me was like this hideous, polluted metropolis. And it's like, I've managed to flip them. Okay, so Molly, I want to do one final thing, which is um, now that we've had this really intense and emotional conversation, I want to know if there's something that you would like to bring from this experience, whether it's from your unlived life or from our conversation forward into your lived life. And then I'm going to gift you a little something as well. I mean, that image at the end, now I feel like the countryside inside me, I'm never going to get away from that. Like, that's huge and life-affirming and amazing. I, You know, the way, because when I think, you know, I always think about the countryside as away from me, out there, that thing, to be honest, is something that was in my past and that might be in my future, but that is not part of me right now. But actually now I'm like, of course it's a part of me because it's that kid. It's me. It's how I grew. And so it's just about seeing it again. I think what I wanted to give you, which actually, even as I think about it, I'm not even sure that I believe it, but I think my feeling earlier when we were talking is I feel like I want to gift you a sort of unambivalent love of London in the sense that I think so much of this, and it's become really evident, but like, and now I think maybe part of this conversation can have helped that because I think you've got this tangled dance with it. And that's part of what makes it beautiful. 
But I think I want to just allow you to love London and live in it because you clearly aren't going anywhere. I think my story about my ambivalence for London is is for other people. I think it's in a kind of apology, like to where I grew up with, to the people I love who don't get it. Because there are so many people in my life who don't get it and who not necessarily explicitly, but do, and sometimes explicitly, kind of make me feel guilty for having kids in London or being here, you know, and it takes all different sorts of forms. COVID has given a whole new one about, you know, it's actually like the, the, the stinky rat haven for, you know, viruses and things. But um, I have a true, yeah, a true love of London and its nature as well as its kind of uh, urbanity. Um, and I think I spin a story that is for other people because I don't feel like I should, but fuck it. Fuck it. What I loved about chatting to Molly was not just how ultimately she realized that the countryside of her youth was inside her, but how this realization came packaged within an awareness that she does sometimes use living in London to avoid being the thing she most fears, a cliche, a middle-class white woman who has relatively little of interest to say and so struggles with questions like whether to live in the countryside or not, which to her mind is banal in first world. There's no question that it's a matter of privilege to even be able to consider these things, but the core issue, whether we can face ourselves, whether we can think of ourselves as having something of value to put into the world, is one that extends far beyond class or race. In this sense, Molly's description of living in London really is, as she puts it, self-flagellating. She uses it to deny herself, to cover up something that she thinks isn't good enough. By delving into Molly's unlived life, we did not decide that her life would have been better in the country, but that Molly is best exactly where, and as exactly who, she is right now.